you turn tonight to Revelation chapter 16, and I really simply want to take us to a place to where we have a grasp on the Battle of Armageddon, or as I like to call it, the Campaign of Armageddon. And I don't want to belabor it, but it's so important because people often say, well, you made all that stuff up in your head because the battle's actually not described in the book of Revelation in a, in a way that you can just say, well, there it is and this is what happens. And in fact, a majority of the battle and things that we know about it not only transpires in the bold judgments and the trumpet judgments, uh, but it also happens in the, the Old Testament. And so tonight, Armageddon A to Z, and you notice there in verse 16 of Revelation 16, it says they gathered them together in a place in Hebrew called Armageddon or Har Megiddo. And that location is in the valley of Jezreel. It sits on the western edge uh, near the confluence of two portions of that valley, one coming up from the south, one coming from the coast, the coastal city in modern-day Israel, the city of Haifa. The city of Haifa is the location of the Israeli Navy's only naval base. And they have a few outposts, but their base is in Haifa. And so as we look at this campaign, it is well for us to remember, and I think this is so important because people will often ask you the question, you know, well, you know, I, I mean, oh, okay, I believe there's going to be maybe some kind of conflict, but what precedes it? What's going to happen? And the reason that this subject matter is so important is the world is being staged right now for this final conflict. The pieces are being moved around on the chessboard of geopolitical things all over the world, even as we sit here tonight. And so as the prophet spoke, uh, in many cases, 2,700 years ago, about this particular time that we have yet to see, they gave us all the details of what the world would look like as we lead up to this final conflict. I do not believe for a moment it is only a single battle. I believe that what happens will happen over a very long period of time, uh, possibly longer than the tribulation. And the reason that I say that is what we know about the Antichrist. The Antichrist, when he first comes, will be a man of peace. And so I believe the initial conflicts in this particular battle, which will be a singular battle at the end, when the Lord returns, will actually be a series of global conflicts that will happen primarily involving the Middle East, but will suck in the whole world. And so it is to be viewed, I believe, as something that could even start before the church is taken home. It could well be that some of the initial skirmishes, the things that set the stage for the alliances and allegiances of these world powers that ultimately we find described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in a battle known to many of you as the Battle of Gog and Magog also I do not believe as a singular battle, but rather a series of conflicts that culminate with Russia coming from the north and gathering together its allies, which will be primarily Muslim nations, 
to fight Israel itself. So if the man of sin, Satan, empowering the Antichrist and the false prophet, is going to solve something, it's going to be that region of the world that he's going to focus on. And so I believe that we can see this as we look at these various passages that describe quite clearly uh, the geopolitical climate of that time. And so as we embark on this journey tonight, uh, get your iPads, your pens, your pencils ready. Uh, Don't forget that you can also download these slides and so all the scripture references uh, you're able to get on the internet on our website. And before we dig in, let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we thank you, Lord, that uh, we will not be around for the battle of Armageddon, save to come back with our King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he defeats the armies of the world. But Lord, we pray that as you see these things come to fruition, Lord, as the as the world waxes worse and worse, as our world comes unhinged, as, as nation does rise against nation, as you, Jesus, said, Lord, as these nations will rise up eventually to even attack the little tiny nation Israel, Lord, we know that you are their defense and their strength, you are their portion, and you will absolutely in those last days save a remnant of the tribe of Israel. And so we ask you to speak to us tonight by the power of your word, strengthen us, encourage us, Lord, to receive it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The word Armageddon is found really in its context only in this passage. And so as you look at it, it comes from two Hebrew words, har, meaning tell or mountain, and and Megiddo, slaughter. So it is the Mount of Slaughter, very appropriate name. And interestingly enough, when you look at where that that lies, the actual city, uh, it is a very unique place in, in human history. Because if you travel there, and we'll actually go there in a couple of weeks when we travel to Israel, but when you travel to the actual site, it's actually a national park uh, in Israel. And the city that is there uh, is one city on top of another city, on top of another city, on top of another city, times 26. There are 26 different levels of civilization that have been excavated at Har Megiddo. And so as you travel there, it is very clear that this has been a focal point for mankind probably since the time shortly after the flood of Noah. Secular archaeologists, as they've dug through the rubble and the ruin of that particular city, uh, as as they've come to the conclusion of each successive layer and, and dated materials, which is actually quite easily done when you're dealing with thousands of years, is quite accurate. It's believed that there have been civilization there for at least 3,500 years. And so these cities, one on top of another, will one day uh, come to their fruition in this battle that we call Armageddon. Uh, That particular mount and where it sits commands a, a picturesque view of the Jezreel Valley when you stand on the top of that mound of civilization. You you can look to the north and to the west. You can look to the east and to the south, and you can see the entire expanse of this area that will one day be the heart of this war. Uh, It sits near a little tiny kibbutz uh, named after uh, this, this particular place, and so it is very strategically located. If you were going to land troops in a modern theater of war, 
Uh, really the only place that they could land in that region would be at Haifa. It's also interesting to note that the Russian Navy has been keeping ships in Syria at the port of Tardis, uh, which is just a short jaunt away from the port city in Israel of Haifa. And so it's very clear that even in a geopolitical climate such as we have today, that this area of the world could be very volatile very, very quickly. There's a couple of important things to be considered, and we'll look at some scriptures to back them up. And Jerusalem is actually the focus of the battle. So if you turn to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 2, uh, you'll actually see that very, very clearly. And so when you look at that, it's interesting to also note that from where this valley is to Jerusalem is, is about 55 miles. And it used to be that that would be a tremendous distance. And if you were going to march an army, it would take quite a while. But obviously with the day and time in which we live, we actually have artillery pieces. We have short-range rockets uh, that would make Jerusalem within striking distance virtually from anywhere within the Jezreel Valley. And so these huge numbers of soldiers gathered together, you could easily cram all of these people in. But the focus, Zechariah tells us, is actually the fight for Jerusalem because it is there that Jesus will return. It is there that he will place his feet back on the Mount of Olives and it will split in two. And so the the actual focus, though the battle will occur in, in this gigantic uh, valley that lays out before the the range of mountains that's the coastal range of mountains it'll actually be the focus will be there in Jerusalem and so you have the logistical seaport you have the ability for troops to come from what would be Egypt Saudi Arabia Iraq Syria all of them could transit into this area of the world in in mechanized fashion could be flown in uh, dropped in by you know helicopter or whatever, this is all able to be done and is not a, some stretch of the imagination. And when you look at a map and you see where that would culminate, it would be right here at Megiddo that that would happen. In Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see this. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against, notice who it is, the rider on the horse and his army. So it becomes very clear in chapter 19 that these armies have gathered together for one singular purpose, and that's to actually fight the Lord Jesus himself. And so this will be the final battle where mankind has just said, okay, this is it. We've come to the end, and they're going to be fighting against literally the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now on to the Old Testament, and as we do so, it's important that you understand a couple of things, because the Battle of Armageddon, it isn't, doesn't say that there, but what it does say frequently and often is statements like, the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day, or in that day, or on that day, and so as you turn there to Zechariah chapter 12, let's kind of unwrap this because Zechariah, that whole chapter in essence pictures this incredible battle. The series of interrelated disasters and battles, this campaign that transpires over a long period of time that culminates with the Lord's return. Verse 1 and 2, and it says, This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. 
The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the spirit of man within him declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding nations. A cup of trembling is how it reads in the New King James. Judah will be besieged as well as, notice it, Jerusalem. So there's going to come a point in time, and let me just make sure that you understand this. Jerusalem has never been, ever been, during ancient times, nor is it really today a cup of trembling for the whole world. Matter of fact, Israel is mocked even to this day. It was considered a byway. It was conquered by successive uh, nations. It was conquered by the Babylonians. It was conquered, conquered by the Assyrians. They were sent and dispersed throughout the world. And for 2,000 years, they didn't even have a country. And to this very day, even tonight, if you call up the State Department of the United States of America and you ask them where we have our consulate in Israel, you're going to find out it's in Tel Aviv and not Jerusalem. We don't even acknowledge the fact that Jerusalem, as far as the Jewish people are concerned, is their capital. But there will come a day when Jerusalem will be the focus of this final war, mankind against God. And so the term in or on that day is used frequently by the prophets in general as a clue pertaining to a time that is still yet future to us tonight. So we pick up in verse 3, on that day when the nations of the earth are gathered against her, there has never been a time when the nations of the earth have been against Israel and the focal point Jerusalem. The nations of the world, very specifically Nazi Germany, came against the Jewish people during the Second World War, but they did not come against Jerusalem. And I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. For all who try to move it will be injured themselves. Interestingly enough, since 1948, May 14th, Israel is given the opportunity to once again become a nation, speak their own language. They, they now have been in the land for some 70 years. As they've been in, the night that they announced their independence and the formation of this country that will become Israel, the night, the very next morning, all of the nations that were around Israel that are Muslim nations attacked this fledgling nation. The very next day, guess who won? Israel. Fast forward to 1972, by then Israel actually holds in its grasp nuclear weapons. And due to the fact that they have those nuclear weapons, one of the things that they decided, because they're such a tiny nation with indefensible borders, is they would put forth what's called the Samson Option. The Samson Option, when it was implemented during the 1972 war, required that they would take an F-4 Phantom provided by the United States of America, arm it with a nuclear weapon, and they would put it in the air. Should there be any chance that Israel was going to lose, they would blow up Damascus, Cairo, and drop a couple on Saudi Arabia. Those planes actually flew during that 1972 war. But Israel was so successful, they destroyed almost the entire Egyptian air force on the ground in three days. Notice what it says. That ultimately these nations will not be successful. 
If you look at Israel today, you look at this little tiny nation of eight and a half million people or so. If you go online and you Google the most powerful armies on the earth, Israel's in the top ten. And they have about as many people as we have here in the L.A. Basin. Zechariah says the entire world's going to turn on this country. On that day it goes on, I will strike every horse with panic, its rider with madness. And obviously he's seeing from a period of time, but I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. In other words, the weapons, and interestingly enough, during the Battle of Oz in the upper Golan Heights during the 1972 war, as the Syrians came with some 10,000 pieces of mechanized armor, and the Israelis had about five functioning centurion tanks, the Israelis figured out that the Russian tanks, the T-22s that were provided by the Soviet Union to the Syrians, could not move and fire at the same time. And so the Israelis figured out that the only way that they could track them is by tracking them with their headlights. And so what did they do? They drove them backwards, used their guidance systems, and the entire Syrian armored division was wiped out in Syria. You can go see the remains of the battlefield today. It says that God would blind the horses. He's going to continue to blind the horses. He keeps doing these things. Syria went to produce a nuclear weapons facility by building a reactor. Little known fact, Israel said, no, that's not going to work for us. They blew that to bits. The 1980s Saddam Hussein also built at Osirak a nuclear reactor. The Israelis said, that's not going to work for us. They blew that to bits. Those nations keep coming against Israel, and guess who keeps winning? It's going to happen all the way to the end. The reason the United States does not want to become anything other than an ally to Israel is to do so, is to be on the wrong side of God. That's why. When people ask me, I say, it's actually common sense. I, you know, If I'm going to be in a war, I'd like to be on the side that we call the winning side. That would be on the side of Israel. And leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, so people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord, Almighty, the Lord Almighty is their God. And on that day I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot and a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And they will consume right and left the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. Isn't it weird? You would think... If you had Syria against you, Lebanon against you, Egypt against you, Saudi Arabia at that time against you, which Saudi Arabia is kind of a little bit neutral now, which, by the way, the prophet Isaiah said would happen in the last days. You had all these nations gathered around you with with a force at least 100 times the, the force of the army of Israel. You would think that would be pretty easy pickings. And yet, not only in 1948 and also in 1972, but also in or in 1967, and also in 1972. So each time they get attacked, guess who wins? And the Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. And on that day, a shield to those who live in Jerusalem. The Israelis even actually quote this as a reason that they use the Iron Dome missile system, which, by the way, the guidance system for which was actually developed by the Israelis. 
We gave them some of the mechanical parts, some of the missiles themselves, but the guidance system was devised by them. Of Jerusalem's inhabitants, that they may not be greater than that of Judah. And it says, those shield who will, for those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David. They actually have a missile system called David's sling. Interesting, given what the prophet Zechariah said would happen in the last days. The house of David will be like God. Notice it doesn't say it'll be God. It says it'll be like God. The children of Israel know him as the strong and the mighty one. They know him as El Shaddai. Like an angel of the Lord to go before them. And they knew the history of the angel of the Lord. And on that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attacked Jerusalem. Up to now, all the nations have not come against Jerusalem. But many nations have tried. But there will come a day when all of the nations of the earth will rise up against Israel. Zechariah simply announces that this will happen just prior to the Messiah's return. Notice, a day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you and gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it and the city will be captured and the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of that will not be taken from the city. And the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. And so in the very last days, it's going to get really ugly in Israel. Probably some of you are going, well, and why are you going there? Because I read the book. I'm not worried. Worst things happen, we might get raptured from Jerusalem. If that happens, we'll see you there. Notice what it then says. And on the east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, it'll be split in two from the east and to the west, forming a great valley. If you know anything about the African uh, rift valley that extends up from northern Africa, it goes right smack dab through the middle of the Jordan River Valley. It's one of the most seismically active places on the planet. Been earthquake after earthquake after earthquake. One day, the Lord Jesus is going to be the cause of the biggest earthquake mankind's ever seen as he puts his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And it will free, flee that mountain valley as you fled the earthquake from the days of Uzziah, the king of, of Judah, and then the Lord my God will come. Notice it tells us what will happen. The giant earthquake, and they'll flee just like they did from the great earthquake, which, by the way, has been very well excavated in the Jordan Valley. They have actually identified that earthquake fault. It actually split right through part of Jericho. And so they were able to say, yep, that's when this earthquake happened, during the, king of time, uh, uh, during the time of King Uzziah. Uh, some 2,800 years almost ago. Now if you want to turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel gives us some additional details. Daniel 9.27, a verse that we've looked at. And then he, that would be the man of sin, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In other words, that one seven year, that final remaining period that we know is the tribulation. The last week of mankind's rebellious time here on this earth. The age of grace is ending, and God's finally going to deal in the middle of that seven. So after three and a half years, remember the Antichrist comes on the scene. He establishes with the Jewish people the ability to do a couple of things, to build a temple on the Temple Mount 
and for them to begin once again worshiping Yahweh, Lord of hosts, in the temple that is now rebuilt. And so the Antichrist makes a covenant with them. He's a man of peace. And now you can see that the world will come against Israel. And as as it begins to unfold, the Antichrist is actually going to be part of kind of forestaying some of the initial conflict. And he'll step in the scene. Oh, no, wait a minute. I'm a man of peace. You know, I don't want you to... No, let's not do that. Let's try and work this out. And so he uses a one-world religion, a one-world monetary system, and a one-world government to bring peace. And the Jewish people are able to worship. Daniel tells us this, but at the middle of the seven, three and a half years in, he will put an end to the sacrifice, the offering. And on the wing, he will set up the abomination that causes desolation until the end of that which is decreed is poured out upon him. We know what the end is that's poured out upon him. He's going to get his due. The Lord Jesus will take care of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself. But during that time, just before the Lord returns, those last three and a half years that we've been looking at in all these areas of judgment, the trumpets, the seals, the bowls, these words spoken by the prophets of old. See, it's not just the book of Revelation that describes these things. The Old Testament was saying, look, there's been things like this that have happened. You could have looked at the Assyrian army when they came. They were vicious, but they were defeated, and they were sent on their way. You could have looked at the Babylonian captivity. They actually sacked Jerusalem. But again, they were defeated. The children of Israel, after 70 years, released. They came back, and under Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilt the city, and it's still there. At the height of the Antichrist power, the king of the north will come. The king of the south will come. They're going to break the covenant. And then all these things that we saw happen back in chapter 13, 14 will begin to unfold. And then if you look down at verses 28 through 31, and at the appointed time, he will invade from the south again, but this time the outcome will be different than what was before. The ships of the western coastlands will oppose him. Where are the ships at in Israel? They're on the western coast. So Israel is evidently going to have their navy still intact at that time. And he'll lose heart. Interestingly enough, people don't realize that the Germans and the French and the United States of America have been arming that little tiny nation. And Israel has five submarines that are equipped with surface or surface-to-air cruise missiles that can be nuclear armed. So Israel is a force to be reckoned with in the Mediterranean. So when those ships pour out of the Bosphorus, when they come from the Black Sea, the Black Sea fleet that Russia has that currently is ported just north of them, they're going to run into a little more than they might possibly think. Then he'll turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, against Jerusalem itself. He'll return and show favor to those who forsook it. And his forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifice. He's going to set up that abomination that causes desolation. So the, they're in chapter 11. The Antichrist again comes to this place to where he's going to get involved. The man of sin is going to do as he pleases. He's going to exalt himself. And so Daniel 11 gives us some more pieces of the puzzle. The prophet Joel, the whole of chapter 2, is also a picture 
of this same time. And as you think of these things, you can look at it this way. We're given pieces in many of these Old Testament books. We're given additional details in the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments, and all of them assembled together to give us a picture of what that battle is going to look like. And so you can see it will truly be a global conflict. It's not just going to be a regional conflict. People are going to have to choose sides. And I find it striking and very interesting the direction our country is going right now. There's such a divide. Should we support Israel? Should we not support Israel? Should we be an ally? Should we not be an ally to Israel? Should we arm Israel or should we just arm everybody in the Middle East? The prophet Joel described this final invasion. Verse 1 in Joel chapter 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, and let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And he tells us why it's different. Notice what it says, Such as never was of old or ever will be again in ages to come. So he says it's going to be something that the world's never seen before. The only nuclear weapons ever used on the face of the earth were used by the United States of America to bring to close the Pacific theater of World War II. Horrible and devastating to the country of Japan. But nothing compared to what the world could do tonight. We don't even possess weapons that small anymore. That's how crazy it is. And so if the world decided that the world wanted to go to battle, the outcome would be very, very different than it was during the Second World War. And before them a fire devours. Notice what it says there at the end in verse 3. Behind them the flame blazes. It really fairly clearly describes the context of a nuclear confrontation. Because the greatest destruction occurs from the heat from a thermonuclear blast. And before them the land is like a garden in Eden, and behind them a desert that is waste, and nothing escapes. You see, during Joel's time, there were famines in the land. There was King Nebuchadnezzar and and his attack on the land of Israel that we would call it today, which would have been the northern tribe Israel and the southern tribe Judah. But he reminds us that this is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is great, it says there at the end of verse 11. It's dreadful. Who can endure it? It's something different. It's something unique. And so when we see that phrase, the day of the Lord, we know that God's talking about something that's never happened before. And now even the Lord declares it as as Joel unfolds this whole picture for us. He foresees the final conversion of Israel at the very, very, very last minute. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said when he authored the book of Romans in Romans chapter 11? He said, and then one day all Israel will be saved. And of course, he's not talking about every individual Israeli. He's talking about like we would say today, a nation is largely one religion versus another. You would say that India is a, is a Hindu nation. We used to be able to say fairly clearly that America was a Christian nation. I'm not so sure that we can say that tonight. I wish we could. But I think post-Christian might be a more apt description. 
to the eleventh hour conversion of great numbers of Jews to Messiah. Joel's warning in the second chapter is just one of many. You remember as we looked last time when we finished up our study here in actually chapter 16, you can see the parallels between what God had done with Moses in Egypt and, and the ten plagues and what God will do once again when he says, look, enough's enough. I, I, I want you to understand I'm fair with mankind. I brought flies and frogs and rivers turning into blood and finally I just killed off every one of the firstborn. I've done these things. I, I brought hail. I brought fire. He's going to do that again. But on a much, much grander scale. And it will not just be confined to, to Egypt. God's going to deal with all the armies of the world. These, these complex military movements that will go on. God's just going to finally say, I've had it. I'm done. And so what are these key elements? There are actually eight or nine of them. I'm listing uh, the eight here. First thing first, Daniel chapter 11, the Antichrist is going to invade Israel and then take his troops to the south. That's going to include North Africa, Egypt, Libya. During that economic dictatorship that the Antichrist will bring, look, you're not going to be able to challenge him because you're not going to be able to buy and sell unless you're part of his world. That will include military hardware. That's going to include anything that has anything to do with anybody buying and selling anything. Toward the end, the king of the south will come up and they're going to join together around Israel. The second thing, the Antichrist is then going to get that news and he's going to be very disturbed by it. And he's going to then force all of his troops to come together and say, look, we've got to do something about this. There in Daniel chapter 11. And all of the kings, all of the armies of the entire world are going to be summoned together. Revelation chapter 9 Chapter 16 that we've already seen, they're going to gather together against Israel and ultimately against the Lord. They're thinking they're going to come against Israel, that Israel is a problem. Now when you think about that concept, stop there for a second and actually ask yourself a couple of simple questions. Why in the world would it be necessary for the entire world to come against Israel? I can tell you that there's pretty much only one reason, and it would have to be a religious one. It couldn't possibly be a geopolitical one. Because you could just simply isolate Israel and make them a non-factor in the world. But if it's a religious one, and there's a one-world religion, and it's a monetary one, there's a one-world monetary system, and you have this little tiny nation saying, "Uh uh-uh, we're not buying that. We're not going there. We get it. And there's these radical 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are roaming all over the region going, hey, we know Messiah. And he is the one that we pierced. And we've given our lives to him. You you see, that would bring the whole world because they're trying to wipe out the last vestiges of, guess what? Christianity. The world's trying to do that tonight. The world is dead set in large part against biblical Christianity. Not the fluffy kind. Not the very errant and aberrant kind that no longer preaches Christ crucified for the remission of sin. Not the one that denies the word of God, but the real church that does what we do here, which is teach it cover to cover. And you know what? We believe what's in here. That church is being persecuted. 
the Antichrist is going to say, look, we need to come against these guys. Daniel reminds us of that. This is where you can interject, and there's so many things that you can read in these passages, and I encourage you to read them. As you begin to assemble the pieces, you realize that in the very last days, it's going to come down to those who love the Lord and those who don't. And that's it. It's kind of focusing that way right now, isn't it? Ask you a simple question. Is Europe actually Christian? It is not. It is post-Christian. Britain is post-Christian. A vast majority of the rest of the world is either Buddhist, Hindu, or Muslim. Guess who's trying to draw all those people together? The Roman Catholic Church. That's been a focus of this Pope. Trying to, we need to have a world conference. We need to put everybody together. We've got to all believe the same thing. That sounds like a setup for the Antichrist. That sounds like somebody playing right into the enemy's plans. And I'm not trying to stretch that too far. That's what he has said. That's what Pope Francis has said. The king of the south comes. The king of the north comes. No one shall escape, Daniel tells us. Then you interject what happens in Ezekiel 38 and 39. For sake of time, read it. Read it. This army from the north, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, gathers together with their allies, Persia, Iran, Libya, North African nations, Saudi, Syria, Lebanon, they all gather together and they come against this little tiny nation, Israel. These are the key parts. They're the things that are going to be happening. And so as you watch the world, you can actually watch these things being set up right before your very eyes. Now until 1948, when Israel came back into the land, anything that happened prior to that would have been before Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 36, as this valley of dry bones has coalesced and Israel becomes a nation again. Until that time, there, there was no way that you could link those things together. But now you can begin to say, oh, that puzzle piece belongs here and this one belongs there and that one belongs over here. And oh, that's kind of interesting. And you put all these pieces together and it's like, Lord, how close could we be? And there's the ominous signs that will be in the sky going to turn man's attention. You know, when Jesus comes again, every eye will see him. Amen? It's not going to be some localized thing. They're going to know that Jesus is coming back. That hasn't happened before. Very local event when Jesus came the first time known initially to a handful of people, and then it spread around the world. But the second time, it's going to be a global event. And he's coming back with a sword next time. 
He's not coming back to be hung on a cross again. He's coming back to deal a death blow to sin, Satan and his minions. Isaiah 63, Micah chapter 2 reminds us that ultimately the Lord Jesus actually cries out, who will fight for me? And because no one would do it, Jesus will come back and fight that great battle. And so he returns with his garments dripped bloodstained from the battle at 186 miles. It goes from Haifa to Edom. And then finally that great earthquake. And then Babylon. Commercial, religious Babylon, literal Babylon will be destroyed. We'll get to that in the next two chapters. And so as we look at these things, that that fall of that region, I, I found it absolutely striking. You remember when we were in the first Gulf War and towards the end we finally captured Saddam Hussein. One of the things that people don't really know about him is he was a fairly prolific builder. And in fact, one of his goals was to reestablish the ancient Babylonian Empire. And in fact, to that end, he actually had statues of himself made standing next to King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know where he got the photos of old Nebi, but, you know, he had some statues made up. And in addition to that, he began to, to, to put together actual literal bricks. He made hundreds of thousands of them, and they said this. This was built by Saddam Hussein the son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. So not that long ago, there was somebody in the Middle East who believed that Babylon was going to rise again. Of course, I'm pretty sure he realizes he's not the guy tonight, but you see the creator of heaven and earth is going to solve that problem because the world steps in to come against the Lord the Lord is ultimately going to say enough. And so a couple of final thoughts for you tonight. Look at these events for what they are. They're really an outline. They are not sequential in the book of Revelation. They are mentioned in several of the Old, in the Old Testament apocalypse, the book of Daniel, the book of Zechariah, the book of Micah. As you look at these things, you, you have to get the whole picture Otherwise, you'll, you'll miss some of the key ingredients. You won't see the allegiances. You won't see the alliances. You won't see the king of the south. You won't see the king of the north. You, you will not, unless you read Ezekiel, you're, you're not going to get this coalescing of this, national, this nation group that's going to eventually come against Israel. And, and it will be that that Jesus will step into to fight the battle of Armageddon. So as you look at the world you can look at it with a biblical lens. When you look at the world, you can look at it correctly. Because much of the world is going, you know, Christians are really the problem. No, Christians are actually the answer. The problem is the same problem that beset Adam. Sin, which has led to death. That's the problem. Mankind loves darkness. Isn't that what Jesus said? They don't love the light. They love darkness. And so people follow after that darkness. And it's gotten so bad now that people are saying, well, you know, darkness is actually light. Didn't 
Isn't that what your Bible says? In the very last days that men will say evil is good and good is evil? And so as you watch these things, here's why this is important. You can tell how close you are. We're close. How close? The Bible says, Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man comes. Only the Father in heaven. So when it exactly is, I don't know. But what I do know is the world is being set up right now for all these events to become a reality. And so for us, it encourages us in this way. We are to hasten the coming of our king. The way we do that is by sending people to Michoacan. We do that by planting churches in El Salvador. We do that by planting churches in Liberia and by going to Uganda and right here in Gardena and across the freeway in Carson. And we share Christ wherever we go because we actually have the answer because you don't have to be here when this happens. You can be there when this happens. And that's what we want. That's what the Lord wants. And so as we wrap up the book of Revelation, we're going to be moving through the remainder of these chapters and and we're going to see these things unfold. We're going to see that final great white throne judgment, but we're also going to see the establishment of his kingdom. Amen? And man, I can't wait for that. Because one day the lamb is going to lie down with the lion. One day you're going to stand on this earth with the Lord Jesus here. Isn't that going to be awesome? Anybody ever wanted to take a tour of the earth with Jesus? You know, I like traveling, but I like to travel with Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. When they look at the world, ask them some questions. What do you think about all the stuff that's going on in the Middle East? You want to really freak them out? Ask them why they think Israel is still there. Because it makes zero sense geopolitically. It's a good open door to tell them about Jesus. So they don't need to worry about it either. Amen? Would you stand? We're going to pray. And I want to just... Let you know that if you're here tonight, you don't know the Lord Jesus. So worship team comes up, and as we close in song, myself and several pastors are going to be down front. This is your opportunity to get to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Scripture reminds us that if we confess Jesus Christ with our mouth, He will confess us before our Father who is in heaven. So we want to pray with you. If you need a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. For the rest of you, tell people about Jesus. The time is now. It's not time to be playing around. It's time to get busy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. Lord, that you would tell us these things in advance. Many of these things nearly 3,000 years ago. Father, you knew what this day would look like and 
that we would be here on the, on the cusp of the end of human history. And Lord, whether it's a week, a month, a day, a year, ten years, we don't really know. But we know the world looks a whole lot like you said it would look when the day of the Lord would, would occur. And so, God, we should be busy. And so I want to pray tonight if there's anyone here, God, that they would have the boldness uh, to leave their seat, to come forward, and to be prayed for and with to receive you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord. And so, God, we thank you for your goodness. We praise you for your blessings. We look forward to your coming. Make us excited about our faith. God, may we be engaged in the things that are concerning you. Use us, Lord, for your glorious purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.